If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn, if you'd like, to Genesis 15. We're actually not going to be there uh, this morning, so perhaps that won't be of value to you. Uh, we are starting into Genesis 15. Last week, uh, I, I finished chapter 14, and, and so naturally this week, working into 15. But there's some things that need to be laid out First, before we can actually get into Genesis 15, we have uh, a few things that we need to talk through uh, initially. Throughout the course of the Genesis narrative, we have been introducing concepts and we've been tracing themes. As a matter of fact, for the past many uh, weeks, we've been thinking through those themes. Last week, we talked about the idea of the tithe uh, as tithe is is introduced in Genesis 14, and we see that for the first time. Uh, We also talked about Melchizedek, and and we we thought through who Melchizedek is and his function within the scriptures. Uh, We thought thematically about the idea of... um, of the Most High God. Uh, it's the first time we see that the introduction to the name Most High God, and so we thought through what, what that means and, and, and what that is trying to introduce. So a lot of things in 14, but as we get into 15, the narrative uh, takes another pretty dramatic shift. Uh, it, it's an extremely important chapter, not just as it relates to what is happening in Genesis, but it's an extremely important chapter as it relates to many New Testament concepts. Genesis 15 is invoked in numerous epistles uh, in order to teach us lessons particularly surrounding the idea of faith. So we've traced various themes, right? We've traced the theme of human sin. We've traced the theme of God's redemption. We've traced the theme of mercy. We've traced the theme of judgment. We have talked before, just in passing at this point, about the various epochs in history, important checkpoints along the path of history that mark moments of decision, maybe decisions for God, maybe decisions for man, uh, maybe from God, maybe from man. But these have helped us chart the course of history and understand in a better way just what God is doing in the world and how it is that God has organized the word of God to communicate to us. And we have seen several of these themes to this point. Uh, My apologies for the, the... Poor scaling there. We'll, we'll fix that for next week. I'm going to come back to this chart next week and perhaps even the week after that. But we have seen uh, many things in Genesis so far. Important events, the history of humanity as we've traced it through creation and the fall and the flood and Babel and the journeys of Abraham. We've also seen things of thematic importance, tracing redemption, the promised seed, Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then, as we'll see in Genesis 15, Abraham believing God. We've seen events which build upon one another to develop the theme of God's covenants. We've seen the Noahic covenant. We've seen the Abrahamic covenant. We'll see that all the more uh, deeply in Genesis 15. And then we've traced events that have threatened the kingdom program of God. God's promises that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. We see that established only then to see Cain kill Abel and God reestablishing his seed through Seth. We see God calls for men to worship him and then man utterly corrupts his way upon the earth. So God destroys the earth in a flood and he establishes a new economy through the family of Noah in a short amount of time. Humanity has once again corrupted itself and they uh, desire to um, 
exalt themselves against God through the Tower of Babel. So God confuses the languages. Then God calls Abraham to continue his plan to bring forth the seed. And Pharaoh takes Sarai into his harem. And Pharaoh must plague the, the, or God must plague the house of Pharaoh in order to protect Sarai and to restore her to her husband. Each of these events being, as it were, an inflection point where the themes of Scripture are established or are threatened, and then we see how God deals with them in turn. So there's a great deal going on in Genesis, and we've seen that to this point. There's a great deal going on in Genesis 15 as well, which we're going to spend the next several weeks considering, laying the foundation for what we're about to read through and then talk about. We're going to explore the next major revelation in the scriptural theme of redemption, We're going to explore the next major step in the scriptural theme of God's covenants with humanity. But as we begin, what I'd like to do is establish a bit of a bird's eye view of what we've been witnessing for the last 14 chapters of Genesis and over the next few weeks. And today, even before that, I want to tell you where I'm coming from. And I think it's important that we cover the idea of how it is that we interpret the Bible, where it is I'm coming from, for for a couple of reasons. First, because when it, it comes to you understanding why it is that I come to the conclusions I do, understanding a method of interpretation is essential. And second, because beginning in Genesis chapter 15, we will see significant divergence in the Christian church as to what is happening and what it means. So to this point, Genesis 1 through 11 particularly, there's, there, there's a measure of divergence depending on uh, if people believe it's, it's literal history or not. But then once you kind of fall into one of those camps, uh, things settle in quite comfortably. But with, with Abraham and particularly with Genesis 15, that changes quite a bit. There are a, a large number of divergent viewpoints And Genesis 15 uh, is very uh, central in understanding how those viewpoints diverge. Understanding how we interpret the Bible will help you know why it is that there are these divergences. And to the extent that you understand where I'm coming from when I interpret the Bible, to that extent you will be able to understand how I come to the conclusions that I'm going to come to as it relates to Genesis 15 and following. Now, if you disagree with how I interpret the Bible, you will likely disagree with my conclusions, and we would expect that, but at least you will understand why it is that we come to different conclusions. And there are people who love the Lord and who are born again and who who, who love His Word who will come to different conclusions. And a lot of times in the church, uh, that has has led to uh, um, pretty strong divergences in in, in church systems and denominations and in such. And maybe some of that is, uh, depending on on interpretive methods, some of that is, is inevitable. But a lot of times what we'll find is we find ourselves fighting on the level of individual doctrinal stances. And I'll go to my verses and I'll proof text you and you'll go to your, your verses and you'll proof text me. And we each have a verse that proves our point in Scripture and our way of looking at things. And, and, and we'll, we'll set a bunch of verses up to be able to prove points. But then the other side has those verses too. Because to be quite honest, particularly if somebody knows the Hebrew, knows the Greek, um, and is well versed in the Word of God, I can basically make this Bible say anything I want it to. And so 
fighting on that level of the higher level doctrines, uh, we often find that to be not very profitable. But to understand how it is we get to that point, we need to understand how we interpret the Bible. The way we approach understanding it. The way we view, the lens through which we view the truths of God's word. And then once we establish that, then we can start to say, okay, then are our divergences in how we're reading the Bible, the manner in which we're interpreting the Bible? Are you interpreting this metaphorically where I'm interpreting it literally? There is a contingency of people that just don't believe God's word. And then there's a contingency of people that do believe God's word but can't agree on how to interpret it. So today we lay out, I'm going to lay out our interpretive method, the way that I have chosen to interpret the Bible. Because even among genuine Bible-believing Christians, there's a wide array of disagreements regarding so many elements of the Bible. Disagreements which leave the church divided, leave some believers confused and others frustrated, and uh, unfortunately some, it leaves them quite resentful even. And we want to try to avoid that. And of course, the best way to do that is to be transparent. So we're going to begin this morning with the foundational or the fundamental presuppositions that Legacy Baptist Church carries into its interpretation of the Bible. We have four fundamental presuppositions that we carry into the Bible. First, we believe that the Bible is a deliberate book, and I'll explain these. Second, we believe that the Bible is an accurate book. Second, we believe that the Bible is a unified book. And then fourth and finally, um, I don't know, did I say third? First, second, third. Fourth and finally, we believe that the Bible is a spiritual book. Let's talk about each one in turn. We believe that the Bible is a deliberate book. The first presupposition I make, this is something that that I don't uh, seek to defend, say, from the Bible itself, is that the Bible is a deliberate book. The idea of the Bible being a deliberate book is that God has given us his word deliberately. God desires to be known is the idea here. He has gone out of his way in every respect to reveal himself to mankind. And we know that God has revealed himself to mankind from the word of God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that the invisible things of him that would be of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that would be the world, are without excuse. Uh, God has revealed himself, and we see first off that God has revealed himself through creation, right? And, and the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 that God has not even just revealed his existence through creation, but that even his eternal power and Godhead can be known through the things that are made, through the created world, so much so that as it relates to the knowledge of God's existence, as it relates to the reality that there is a God in heaven and that we are morally accountable to that God, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that no man has any excuse. All men are without excuse. Even if they're in the deepest, darkest jungles, they they do not have an excuse as it relates to is there a God and does that that God hold moral authority over the world because they are revealed through the created world. 
So we see that the first way that God has revealed himself to humanity is through his creation. That when you see a design, you understand intrinsically that there is a designer, right? There is nothing that that we see in this world that bears the marks of design that we would say, well, that that happened without any input, without any design, without, without any manufacturing. No, 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 no. No, it's designed, therefore it had a designer. It is created and put together intentionally, therefore it had a creator. And Romans chapter one makes that clear. So that's the first way that God has revealed himself to mankind in the, in the, in, in, in the most fundamental way. The other fundamental way that God has revealed himself to us is through our conscience, what Romans 2 calls the law of God written on their hearts. A conscience also bearing witness, so that even among those who do not have the written law of God, there is an intrinsic knowledge, as we've said, of right and wrong, of God's eternal power and Godhead, through that which God has given to us, the the conscience that we have. So we have these basic, what we would call general revelations of God through creation and conscience. But then we also believe that God has given to us of his word, himself through his word, a record of God given to men, which reveals his character in its fullness and not just in its fullness, but with great clarity. Throughout the history of humanity, the God who is above all has consistently broken into his created order to reveal himself to mankind in deeper ways. Whether we speak of dreams or miracles or prophecies or of writings, God has historically actively used methods of communication to disseminate information about himself to humanity. And we believe that the pinnacle of this communication is the word of God. To this end, we recognize that special revelation has nothing more to offer mankind than that God has already given to us. That God has given us all things necessary to life and godliness in his word, beginning with the history of creation in Genesis and ending with the end of history, as it were, in Revelation. We believe thus that God desires to make himself known to us. We do not believe that God is sitting in the heavens in obscurity, laughing, as the world gropes in darkness for any glimmer of light that might testify to his existence among them. God is not playing a a grand game of cosmic hide-and-seek with us, making us earn and work and struggle to find him. Rather, we believe that God has made himself known, that he has, in fact, inspired the Bible for the exact purpose of making himself known unto us, so that we can even say that God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I don't have uh, a slide for this this morning, but God tells the nation of Israel this. He says, For this commandment which I command thee this day is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldst say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Paul quotes this verse, and for those of you that were in Sunday school this morning, we read Romans 10, 9, and 10 about confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Paul quotes this this verse in in Romans uh, 10, verse 8, just, just before that passage. Speaking of that same idea, 
of God having made himself known. We do not serve a God that requires us to climb the highest mountain or, 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 or sail to the farthest reaches of this world in order to find him. We do not serve a God that requires us to ascend into the, the greatest level of enlightenment before we can truly understand who he is and what he expects of us. But rather, God is very nigh unto us. God has made himself known. God has brought himself near unto us. And we believe that he has done that through the word of God. We believe that the Bible is a deliberate book. Second, we believe that the Bible is an accurate book. When we state that the Bible is an accurate book, we are admitting as a fundamental foundation to how we approach the scriptures that the Bible is true. 2 Timothy Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, not meaning sinless. The idea of perfect in the Bible is not the idea of sinlessness. The idea of perfect means finished or complete, having all that is necessary unto one's nature or kind. So the Bible gives us everything that is necessary for us to be Complete. Everything that is necessary for us to, gives us all the requirements necessary to uh, uh, live in the fullness of our nature, the nature that is the new nature that is found through Jesus Christ. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible tells us that the scriptures were inspired by God. The literal translation of that word inspired is God breathed. And there are a lot of debates as to exactly what that means. In this, we do not believe that God overcame the mind of the writer. Uh, Not that God used the writer as some sort of automaton in an automatic writing sort of a way, but rather we compare scripture with scripture. We compare 2 Timothy chapter 3 to 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1, excuse me, where in verse 21, the Bible says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God were moved of the Holy Ghost, and as they were moved of the Holy Ghost, filled and empowered by Him in the context of their own personalities, experiences, and abilities, they penned the very words that God desired them to pen. So that when these holy men of God penned these words, they were the words that God intended them to. And in doing so, man received exactly what God desired them to receive. But an inspired scripture, an accurate scripture, accurate when it was penned, does nothing for us if it is not also preserved. And we believe this as well. We believe that because God has written a deliberate book, in other words, a book that he gave to humanity specifically so that humanity could know him. And when we combine the fact that the Bible is a deliberate book, with the fact that the Bible testifies to being an accurate book, that leads us to a, another conclusion, a subsequent confusion, con- conclusion, not confusion, conclusion, that if the Bible is a deliberate book, if God intended to be known, and if the Bible is an accurate book that God inspired it himself, well, then that accurate book doesn't actually do humanity much good if it's corrupted. Therefore, we also believe that the Bible is not just inspired, but preserved. Jesus, of course, said of his word, not necessarily of the written word, but of the indelible words of God in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Jesus tells us that mankind is accountable to his word, that his word is indelibly in the heavens and that they will not pass away. 
God has told us that he has given us a book by which to understand those words. And he has told us that he desires us to understand him through those words. If he has given us the book and he desires us to know him, then he's going to keep that book so that we might know him from generation to generation. God has not only taken it upon himself to give man what man needs to know, but he also has taken it upon himself to preserve that message from generation to generation so that every generation of mankind will have the revelation of God. And if God wants us to know him, then this makes sense. That God would both inspire and preserve his word, and we believe that to be so. And so we see that the Bible is a deliberate book. We also believe that the Bible is an accurate book. Third, we believe that the Bible is a unified book. And remember, these are our presuppositions. These are things that we're not going to take vast amounts of time proving. These are things that the Bible testifies of itself, and we are allowing to be unproved assumptions, presuppositions to the manner in which we interpret the Bible. Third, the Bible is a unified book. We believe that though the Bible was penned in 66 books over a period of roughly 2,000 years by about 40 different people, even writing in different languages, that the Bible is a unified, a single unified message from beginning to end that was given to mankind. The Bible begins with a perfect creation, and as we'll see next week, it ends with a perfect creation. The Bible begins with the uncontested rule of God over creation and ends with the uncontested rule of God over creation. The Bible contains many accounts, many events, many people, much interweaving of what we understand to be human history, and we will talk about the general course of history in the weeks to come. But what we find is that throughout all of the weaving of history, throughout all of the different contexts within which the Bible is written throughout all the different things that it presents, it is presenting a unified message from beginning to end, penned by men's hands, but written by one God, with a singular message that flows through the pages of those different books of the Bible, none contradicting, none subverting, all directed to reveal God and his great work in mankind from beginning to end and the part that we have to play in it. So we take these things for granted when we're interpreting the Bible. I take for granted that the Bible is a deliberate book. I take for granted that God wants me to understand it. And we're going to talk about how that affects my interpretation a little bit. I take for granted that the Bible is an accurate book. I take for granted that it's true. And that if there's a problem with the book, the problem is with me. I take for granted that the Bible is unified, that it has a coherent message, that it's not contradicting itself because God inspired it and preserved it. And then finally, I take for granted that the Bible is a spiritual book. The Bible is many things. It's a history book. The Bible is a philosophy book. The Bible is a book of poetry. The Bible is a book of music. And in relation to any of those ideas contained within the Bible, any human can pick up the Bible, can analyze the language, can assess the thematic elements, can read its pages and understand those human ideas. Any human can pick up the Bible and with, with, with the training that, that they may have, understand the philosophies or the ideologies, understand the structure, recognize where it's, it's being poetic in structure, recognize where we see narrative, recognize where we see prophetic utterances, and all of that is very academic, and, and, and all of that's there. But on the testimony of God's word, that is just, that's the vehicle through which God communicates. That's the vehicle through which we get the actual 
intrinsic spiritual value of the book at hand. While any man can glean the history and the philosophy and appreciate the beauty of its expressions, only the spiritual man can actually understand the Bible. So we read in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2, verses 11 through 16. Paul asks, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? The only man that can actually understand the spirit of man, or the, the only one that can actually understand the things of a man is the spirit of the man that's in him. I can't fully understand you, and you can't fully understand me. You can understand yourself. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can testify to the things of God. Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, uh, through Paul's teaching, that the natural man cannot receive spiritual things. To this end, we believe that the spiritual concepts of the Word of God, the things which are spiritually discerned, can only be received by men to the extent that, they, that first, the Holy Spirit of God reveals it to them, and second, the recipient then receives those things by faith. What this means is that only those who have the mind of Christ, who have the Spirit of Christ, can understand and receive with gladness the spiritual concepts of God's Word. Only those who have the mind of Christ can understand and receive with gladness the concepts of humility and of obedience, of submission, of love, the way that the Word of God presents them. Only those who have the Spirit of Christ can understand the scope of God's plan for mankind and all creation to the extent that it, it contains spiritual truths that rest outside just philosophy and history and language. There are, many of un there are many unbelievers who, lacking the mind of Christ, are able to understand the technical elements of God's Word, are able to understand the language, are able to understand the history, but what they will invariably lack is the capacity within themselves to receive the spiritual truths and the meanings of the Word of God. This is, in fact, one of the reasons why Jesus even spoke in parables, if you recall. And this is not just speaking of unbelievers, the natural man. As a matter of fact, most of 1 Corinthians, Paul is rebuking the church for being as the natural man, for being carnal, for walking as men, for not walking in the Spirit, for not living in the Spirit. Yes, they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they have quenched Him, they have grieved Him, and so they are walking in a manner that is fundamentally inconsistent with, with the Spirit of God, and so the Spirit of God is not able to be their teacher, and thus they are not able to discern spiritual things. To this end, to understand the Bible and to receive it unto benefit, I must have the mind of Christ. I must be walking in the Spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us that there is only one true set of spiritual truths that the carnal man will be able to receive invariably. 
Only one set of spiritual truths which the Holy Spirit ministers into the heart of the carnal man. And Jesus presents that set of spiritual truths in John 16. He says this. He says, nevertheless, he's talking to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Jesus promised that the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit of God, would come into this world after his departure. And he gave many promises of what the Comforter would do for them. He calls it the Comforter because he would comfort them in their affliction. He tells them that the Comforter would teach them all things. And we see that promise reiterated in 1 John. But he says that he would reprove the world first of sin and of sin, namely, that they do not believe in, in Christ. The sin of unbelief, the great sin that separates us from God. Second, of righteousness, because Jesus has ascended unto the Father. Jesus is the righteous one, and we know that because of his resurrection and his ascension. And then third, of judgment, that the prince of the world is judged and that all who follow the prince of this world will be judged with him. And these things, Jesus says, the Spirit of God will do to the world, to all that are in the world, so that those who are in the world can, in fact, receive this spiritual insight, the reality of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, though they are spiritual concepts. And yet, outside of this, we see nothing in the Scripture save Paul's warning that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And because we believe that the Bible is a spiritual book, we believe that the spiritual method, message will be primarily obscured to them who are walking in carnality, save that singular spiritual message of unbelief, of righteousness, and of judgment. So we establish the fundamental presuppositions. When we step into how it is that we interpret the Bible, when I step into really everything that, that, that's been Genesis 1 through, through 14, but as we step into Genesis 15, this is the, these are the presuppositions I make when I interpret the Bible. I believe that the Bible is deliberate, that God is attempting to communicate to me, that he's not trying to hide himself from me. I believe that the Bible is accurate. I'm going to take the Bible as truth. I believe that the Bible is unified, that I'm looking at a book that was uh, a singular book that was written over many years and penned by many people, but written as a singular message from God to man that contains unified themes and that is a, a proper commentary on itself because it is a book that does not contradict or subvert itself. And then I believe it's a spiritual book, which means as I step into it and as I present it, I expect to be... Uh, I need to be in a place and then expect to present it in a manner that, that, that assumes upon the spiritual rightness of those who are listening. Next, we establish, based upon these presuppositions, how we're going to read this book. The rules for interpretation. And as a general rule, when we step into the Word of God, I follow five rules of interpretation. I interpret naturally, grammatically, historically, contextually, and prayerfully. Let's explain them together. The idea of interpreting the Bible naturally is that because the Bible is a deliberate book intended to be understood, 
intended to teach us of a God who is by no means trying to hide himself from us. I believe then that the Bible is supposed to be understood so that as I interpret it, I'm going to interpret as I would naturally expect to interpret that form of writing. Now, in in many books, you'll see the term literally here. Literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation of the Word of God. Now, if you go back to sermons in the past, you'll see that literal was there in the past, but I like natural better. And the reason is this. Not all of the Bible is interpreted literally. We interpret it literally to the extent that the particular genre of writing encourages us to. And so I think naturally is a better way to put it. And what I mean by that is this. If I'm reading historical narrative, I'm going to read it as history, which means I'm going to take it literally. I'm going to assume that the author intends to convey the actual history that they're writing about, and therefore I'm going to take it as if it's history, and I'm going to read it as I would read a history book. And I read a history book as a factual book, as as a book of truths, Probably not a good idea in our current day, but you know what I mean. You read a history book as a set of truths that I am gleaning and I am then imposing that, that, that those truths into the context of history as it exists. I don't assume that I have to read between the lines in a history book or identify some secret code or glean some obscure text. When a historian writes a historical narrative, he takes care to be clear so that the history is not obscured. And so I read it as a history book. The same with the epistles. When someone writes me a letter, I assume that they're writing that letter to be understood. If you want me to understand a letter that you're writing, you need to write it in English. And you need to write it using proper English grammar so that I can understand subject, verb, complement, and that allows me to glean properly. You're going to do that for me because I am an English speaker and I read English according to proper rules of grammar. When someone writes me a letter, I'm going to assume that it is written to be understood. When a missionary sends me an email asking to take part in one of our services, we've had that happen quite a bit lately, I don't read every third word and then divide that by the number of the, you know, moons of Jupiter to try to come up with what the missionary is trying to tell me. I assume that every word is there because every word is supposed to be there, and I read them in the order that they're supposed to be read in order to glean what I would assume to be the message that he wants for me, specifically because that is how language works. So I'm going to assume that the author is using the language that they have in the manner that they intend to in order to communicate something to me. For historical narrative, for epistles, those are things that I am going to assume are communicated, if we can say it this way, literally, right? Because when I write a letter, I'm not trying to be obscure, unless I have one of those decoder rings, but that's not how that that, that works. I'm not going to assume that the missionary is going to send me a letter that needs a decoder ring to understand. Now, if they send me a letter with a decoder ring, well, then that's different. But that's not going to be my primary assumption. However, when I read poetry, things change a little bit, don't they? Job through Song of Solomon, particularly in the Bible, are poetry. I'm not going to read 
poetry quite the same way that I would historical narrative or epistles, am I? In the same way that I would never read a hymn, the same way that I would read a letter. You've heard me say many, many times in the pulpit, I'll get up after we've sung a hymn, and I'll say that within the the nature of hymns, we have something called poetic license. Now, there are many hymns that can teach us many literal truths, and that's wonderful. But we are not still going to approach a hymnal the same way that we would approach a historical narrative. Because even though hymnals have many literal truths within them, there are also also things that are are poetically obscured. Uh, I talk regularly of the nature of crossing the Jordan in, in singing. We sing about crossing the Jordan. And if I were to ask you in this room, what is the symbolic reference to crossing the Jordan when we sing our hymns, you're going to tell me that that is entering into heaven. And yet, biblically, that is not what crossing the Jordan represents. If we look at, in Hebrews and we see the nature of Hebrews' teaching as it relates to that idea of going into Canaan, crossing the Jordan did not represent entering into heaven. The promised land is not heaven, metaphorically. The promised land is the victorious Christian life, metaphorically. It is a place where there are still giants in the land, where there are still walls to fall down. It is a place where there are still people to be conquered, but that God has promised to go before you and to conquer the land in front of you as you exercise faith. That's the promised land. As Moses was on Mount Pisgah looking over the promised land, he was not looking over heaven. He was about to go to heaven. He was looking over the place of promise, and that metaphorically is victorious Christian living. Now, that's okay in a song. Right? It's okay for us to sing that in a song, metaphorically. It's okay for that poetic license to be there. Which is why we don't take our hymnals and turn them into doctrine books. But simultaneously, that's not what you want to read when you're reading a commentary about the Bible. Or when you're reading a historical narrative. Poetry contains exaggerations, alliterations, allegories, metaphors... And we need to understand this when we step into poetry, Hebrew poetry, and modify how I'm going to interpret that portion of the Bible on a, and to account for the fact that the writer is using an intentionally stylistic form of writing for effect. Same with prophecy. I understand that prophecy is something that, that cannot be taken entirely literally. That prophecy contains a great amount of illusion. Prophecy contains a great amount of metaphor and of analogy. So that as I see all the crazy things in Revelation and and, uh, uh, beasts with with, with, uh, heads and tails and and trying to prophesy it all, and and you'll you'll see people who will, you know, they'll, they'll try to draw it out and artistically render it, and some will render it very literally and others will render it less literally. But we don't really know because it's prophecy. And see, because it's not intended to be taken entirely literally, because I know that there's a stylistic element to it, here's what I know. That the primary function of communication in prophecy or in poetry is not to teach literally. There's a different functional reason for it. How do I know that? Because if, if, if they were going for deep and clear doctrinal clarity, they would not have used poetic expression. They would have used a different form of writing. And so I interpret the Bible naturally, according to the rules of language and the rules of communication. And the reason why I feel comfortable doing that is because I believe that the Bible is a deliberate book. I believe that God wants to communicate to me. I believe that God wants me to know him. And so he's not going to 
pretend that something is historical narrative that I ought to in, uh, uh, interpret literally, but then he's going to actually force me to decipher a code in order to understand it. Second and third together, grammatical and historical. These are based upon the fact, the presupposition that the Bible is an accurate book. See how I'm building. First, I, 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 I start with the foundation of my presuppositions. Then I build upon that my method. And then I'll build upon that my strategies. So my method, a natural interpretation. Second and third, grammatical and historical. Because I believe the Bible to be an accurate book, I'm going to interpret it grammatically and historically. The idea of grammatically means that I believe that the words of language matter, not just the concepts or the ideas. Because we believe the Bible is an accurate book, inspired and preserved by God, we exhibit confidence that God has given us a detailed, accurate, and complete revelation of himself. And to this end, the words matter. And I'm not going to attempt to redefine them to make them fit my narratives or my ideas or my agendas. I desire to let the Bible speak for itself, to let the Bible judge us rather than us judging the Bible. And then I respond to it as the Spirit moves accordingly. Now again, this is ideal. Does that mean I've never imposed my thinking on the Bible? It doesn't. Unfortunately, I'm a flawed man. Does it mean I've got all of the answers and that it's as simple as me? As long as I know the Hebrew and the Greek, I can give you every single answer? No, I can't. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how language works either. You've heard me get behind this pulpit and say, you know what, I, I, I missed it. I misinterpreted something. I've done it before. I'll do it again. I'm learning all the time just as you are, and there's always something to learn. But what we're doing here is we're setting rules in place to try to protect ourselves from going off the reservation. From anything goes type of interpretation, whereby as long as it means something to me, that, means that, that, that must be what it means. No, it doesn't matter what it means to me. That's application. That'll matter to you. What it means to you will matter to you, and what it means to me matters to me. But before I can determine what it means for me, and you can determine what it means for you, we have to determine what God meant when he, when he penned it. What did God mean? Once I know what God meant, then I can understand how that, that applies to me, how that applies to you. But I don't get to decide what, what the text means. God gets to decide what the text means. So that's the idea of grammatically, also historically. This also speaks to accuracy. We believe the Bible fits into history seamlessly and is accurate in every area that it touches. We do our best to interpret the Bible knowing that it has specific meaning and intent at the time that it was written. Understanding that there are certain things that were written to a certain audience in a certain time in their history for a particular reason. Recognizing that the vast majority of this book was not written to an American Christian, but to a Jew. Understanding that the vast majority of this book was written to a people that were under a covenant that you and I are not under. Recognizing how this affects the manner in which we glean from the word of God. So that the way we'll say it is that while the whole Bible is certainly written for us, that does not mean that the whole Bible was written to us. All things in the Bible have profit for us. For any number, in any number of ways. But that does not mean that every promise in the book is mine. God has given promises to many different peoples over many different times. God has directed people in certain ways in certain times. And the Bible is a unified book. There's a reason why God is presenting to us what he is presenting. 
But the Bible is a historical book, and it is couched very strongly in history. We do our best to interpret the Bible in this way, and we take into account the fact that each of these letters in the New Testament epistles was written to a real group of people with real problems. We understand that the prophets wrote to a real nation of people who had entered into a true and physical covenant with God, and we take those things into account when we read the Word of God. So we read it naturally. We read it, grammat- we read it naturally because we believe the Bible is a deliberate book. We read it grammatically and historically because we believe the Bible is an accurate book. We read it contextually because we believe the Bible is a unified book. We interpret the Bible within context because we know that the Bible is unified in message with the same author. Different penmen, but the same author, that being the Holy Spirit of God. To that end, I can trust that the Old Testament is a flawless commentary on the New Testament and that the New Testament is a flawless commentary on the Old Testament. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we trust the nearest context to be more authoritative than the farthest context. Then we build context upon context. So if I'm reading an epistle written by Paul, and I desire to know a little bit more insight into what Paul may be saying or or where he's going, my first authority to turn to is Paul's other writings. If I'm reading in in, in Ephesians, as a matter of fact, the first place I'm going to go if I'm reading in Ephesians is Colossians, because they're very, very close books. Then I'm going to go to the other prison epistles. Then I'm probably going to go to uh, Romans. And then maybe to the the pastoral epistles. And I'm going to compare his writings with his other writings to glean a better idea of the manner in which he taught and how it is that we're going to best understand it. And then after that, I'll go to the rest of the New Testament. And then after that, I'll go to the Old Testament. And only after I've done all of that, then I might check the theologians and other opinions. But we will always hold up the context within this order of precedence, seeking at all costs to avoid doing violence to the interpretation of the scriptures by stripping from the text its relevant context and so manipulating its meaning. Scripture taken out of context can be very dangerous. Especially when we think of the epistles. The epistles are where we find a great deal of doctrinal teaching I gave that letter analogy a while back. If a missionary writes to me, I'm not going to count every third word and divide it by the moons of Jupiter, right? And that's not how I'm going to interpret the scriptures. But I also don't interpret letters this way, where I get a letter from my wife, and it's three pages long, and it's 15 paragraphs, and I don't read the rest of it, and I jump into paragraph eight. And I only read paragraph eight, and I say, well, based upon paragraph eight, I'm assuming this, this, and this, and this. And then I simply go off of the assumptions that I've made based upon paragraph 8. Well, you know, if if there were seven paragraphs prior, maybe something in those seven paragraphs will tell me how it is I ought to receive paragraph 8. And how it is that I can understand paragraph 8. And I'm not going to read paragraph 8 outside of the context of paragraphs 1 through 7. And I might even need a previous letter. So that my wife writes in paragraph 8, and remember I wrote to you in the last letter... And I need to go reference that last letter to get a feel for what it is that she's trying to tell me in paragraph 8 of this letter. And that's natural. That's how we interpret. We desire to do so in the Bible because we believe the Bible is a unified book. Finally, by way of interpretation, we do so prayerfully. Because we believe that the Bible is a spiritual book, there are conditions of my heart that ought to be met in order to glean from it properly. 
prayerful, humble, ready to submit to the truths of God's word, going where God's spirit leads and teaches, regardless of whether or not I like it, whether it meets or offends my sensibilities, whether it makes perfect sense to me or not quite. Faith always precedes the blessing. We know that from Hebrews 11. And if we prayerfully and therefore humbly approach God's word, walking in fellowship, so not grieving or quenching the spirit of God, God has told us that he desires to teach us all things and he has given us of his spirit to do exactly that. And so I trust him to do so. All right, so we're building an idea here, how it is that we interpret. I start with presuppositions, that the Bible is a deliberate book, that the Bible is an accurate book, that the Bible is a unified book, that the Bible is a spiritual book. I assume these things. I'm not going to argue about those things. Those are my unprovable presuppositions based upon the testimony of the Word of God of itself. Then I build upon that a method of interpretation based upon rules. I interpret naturally. I interpret grammatically. I interpret historically. I interpret contextually. I interpret prayerfully. And I do that because of my presuppositions. And then finally, I have a couple of strategies that I pursue. And the first of those strategies I call the least common denominator principle. When you're manipulating fractions in mathematics, the strategy of finding the least common denominator simplifies various equations by normalizing the fractions around the common denominator. In other words, if I have um, one half and I have one quarter and I'm attempting to add them, then I'm going to take one half and I'm going to turn it into two quarters so that I have two quarters plus one quarter, which makes it three quarters. I took the denominator, which is the lower uh, number in that fraction, and I made them the same so that I can manipulate them properly. Well, the idea of the least common denominator principle as I talk about it in, in interpretation is this, that when controversy surrounds elements of doctrine... I fall back upon the things which the inspired writers and uh, contexts mutually contain to ascertain the fundamentals or the necessities of that doctrine. Let me give you an example. And we just talked about it this morning in our time in Sunday school. When we're talking about the nature of salvation, what must I do to be saved? There's a lot of answers to what must I do to be saved that you will hear. Believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. And as a matter of fact, all of those that I just mentioned are in the scriptures. Within various times and contexts and listeners and cultures, one can read into the Bible many exhortations regarding receiving the gospel of salvation. From Romans 10, confess, right? Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. But what is the least common denominator? What is the common thread that connects all of those presentations of the gospel? And it is, in fact, the word believe. Now, we have to define what belief means, and we could say that confess and believe and repent and believe and believe and be baptized uh, might all be various facets of the same coin. You're just looking at it from a different angle, and that's fine. But the word that we find that connects them all is believe. Context and audience might compel my gospel to contain any number of exhortations specific to the person unto whom I am speaking, but the element that needs to be there, the element that we find throughout every single gospel presentation is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we call that the least common denominator of the doctrine. That's the thing that holds it all together 
And then we talk about where these other elements and concepts come into play. And then second, you'll see me use what, what I call the principle of compounding clarity. In that God is one God and the Bible is one book and it's a unified and it's an accurate book, the doctrines of the Bible are often dependent one upon another, even built one upon another. I talked to you today about the doctrine of preservation. Now, there are a few scriptures that talk about the doctrine of preservation in the scriptures. Forever thy word, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thou will keep it, thou will preserve it from this generation forever, found in the Psalms. Again, we want to be careful the extent to which we are building doctrine upon Hebrew poetry. But we do recognize that that's there. We see, as, as we quoted from Matthew 23, uh, that, that heaven and earth will pass away, but the Lord's words will not pass away. But we can recognize there, as I acknowledge, that that doesn't necessarily speak of the Bible in written form as much as it is the de- declaration and the edicts of the Lord from generation to generation. So the doctrine of preservation is what I would call a derivative doctrine. It's a doctrine that is built on other doctrines. It's a doctrine that combines the fact that I believe that the Bible is a book, uh, a deliberate book that God desires to communicate and that God has inspired his word, and that God has given us an accurate account and that he wants that accurate account to be communicated from generation to generation to say this. Well, if God has, de- has desired himself to be known, has promised to inspire his word and has said that he would keep his words, then I am going to believe that God has chosen to preserve his word from generation to generation. It's a doctrine that is built upon another doctrine. Now, here's the thing. If I see one of these derivative doctrines and I hold to those derivative doctrines and I start to change a foundational doctrine to conform to a derivative doctrine, I'm doing it the wrong way. If I see a doctrine and I say, well, I believe that the Bible is preserved. So where can I go into my Bible to find that it's preserved? I've done it the wrong way. That's called eisegesis in theological terms. I'm reading into the Bible rather than drawing out of the Bible. We want to build a foundation and then build on that other doctrines and then build on that other doctrines. And if a higher level doctrine contradicts a lower level doctrine, I change the higher level doctrine, not the lower level doctrine. I allow the clearer doctrine and the more foundational doctrine to remain settled unless there is a circumstance where a higher level doctrine absolutely has no other explanation than that I'm wrong about a lower foundational doctrine, a, what I would believe to be a more clear doctrine. And if that, that one that I believe is more clear and more foundational simply cannot reconcile with other doctrinal teaching, well, then I've got to rethink my foundation. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to compromise my foundation because of a higher level derivative doctrine when there are other explanations. And we find ourselves unfortunately, in a place where this happens quite often. And usually it begins with people's interpretations of things either surrounding salvation or begins with people's interpretations surrounding end things, end times. That they come to a conclusion about how they believe the end times is going to go and then they backfill that conclusion into all of their other doctrinal beliefs. And that's not uncommon. And so we follow this principle of compounding clarity, allowing foundational doctrines and clear doctrines to take precedent over derivative doctrines and vague doctrinal statements in the Word of God. If, and that strategy not only protects us from walking into strange interpretations of teachings, which perhaps lack the clarity that we would desire to have in them, but it also creates a system of self-correction, 
where each of our doctrinal positions exists to clarify the others rather than to live in contradiction one to another because we believe the Bible is a unified book. And by God's grace, that adds enough layers of protection to our interpretation to give us confidence that we will not stray too far from what God intends of us and to understand from his word. So as we close today, and I thank you for bearing with me. I know this was a significantly more academic message uh, than perhaps some other ones. You and I are going to interpret the Bible in some way. The manner in which we do so will fundamentally determine the way we draw the Bible out and so how we believe it. The assumptions, the rules, the principles that I've expressed to you today, they're not new with me. These are historically tried methods that have been a guiding light to our faith for generations. It has kept us in a path of safety in a world that has always sought to distract God's people from the simplicity that is in Christ. But as I've said, this is not the only way to interpret the Word of God. And as I continue over the weeks that are to come, explaining to you the manner in which I draw the Word of God out and the way that I categorize it and the way that I organize it so that I, under, so that I can understand it, you might come to a point where you say, hmm, that's very different from the way that I would do it or that's very different from the way I have been taught. What I encourage you to do is to be thoughtful about where it is in this process, either I've diverged and I'm being inconsistent with my own method, or where what you have been taught diverges, and some of those reasons. And then the next thing is to come to the conclusion of, well, which is right, which is best, which is safest, which is clearest, which makes the most sense. Foundationally, building from the foundation up. In order to put something together that does not strip from us the clarity and simplicity of God's word, but rather emphasizes the clarity and simplicity of God's word. And that's the thing that I want to leave you with today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, Paul wrote this. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. We're jumping into a context here, right? For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Speaking of the church there. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety... So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The point of a method of interpretation is not to distinguish ourselves, Christian. It's not to hold ourselves about, uh, above others. It's not to stake out our corner of the Christian market. I didn't sit in, in, in my office one day and say, you know, Buffalo already has kind of this kind of interpretation and that kind of interpretation. And, 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 and what kind of interpretation can I fill to really uh, catch a corner of the Christian market? Uh, no. Now, we did say oh, there is a need in Buffalo. There's a hole to be filled. And that's for a faith tradition that Buffalo does not have and the surrounding areas around Buffalo don't really have a lot of. But we did not determine our interpretive model based upon uh, market studies on what would make the most sense in this area to glean a good number of people. I think, um, you know, 12 years, 13 years on, the church bears out that we're not exactly here um, because we've followed market studies and, and, and such. However, the point of any method of interpretation is to accurately understand God's word, or at least that's what it should be. Because only as we understand God's word can we obey God's word properly. Our method of interpretation serves to encourage us to get out of the way and to let God's word speak for itself. That's what we want. 
to guard us against the tendency to feel as though we have the right to determine what God's word says for ourselves and to compel us instead to be single-minded in our desire to determine what God's word has said to us. Not to confer upon the Bible meaning from our own wisdom and cultural lens, but to draw out the apparent meaning of God's word that he intended it to have from the beginning. And then to apply it carefully and prayerfully to the day and the time in which we live. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And this is the point. And the question that I'd ask you as we close today. When you read the Bible, is this the point for you? Now, I'm not asking if you followed all of these methods. This is, uh, th- th- this is not the kind of stuff. That I-, I don't even, it's not like I have a checklist next to my computer and I check whether or not I've done each one of these. Uh, some people may do that, but, but, but that's not the idea. The idea is not do you follow this philosophy to the T. You may not have even heard of this philosophy before today. But the question is this. Do you read the Bible to humbly understand God's word as we believe God intended it with the intention that you might understand it so that you then might obey it? Or has the Bible become some sort of intellectual exercise for you? Have you been drawn into the many, 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 many teachers out there who have sought to present their method as the corner on the Christian market? That they have a very unique way of interpreting the Bible that gives answers that no one else would ever come to outside of their insight. And so been caught up into this idea that God is really not a God that wants to be understood. God's a God that has to be found. And you have to dig and you have to have special capacities and you have to have special training and you have to have all sorts of special things in order to understand this God who said in Deuteronomy 30, the word is very nigh unto you. It's in your mouth. It's in your hearts that you may do it. He said, I want it to be near to you so that you can obey it because that's what God wants. God is not sitting in the heavens hoping that we won't understand his word so then he can punish us for it. He's sitting in the heavens desiring with all of his heart that we would simply take what he has given to us and believe it so that he can bless us. That's the God we serve. That's the God I believe we serve. That's the God I believe the Bible presents. Do you treat God's word this way? Or is the Bible just a book of history? Is it just a book of philosophy, a relic of a different time, a different way of living, a different manner of thinking? Or is it a spiritual book? Truly a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path, containing in its pages all things necessary for life and godliness. Do you read to learn or do you read to evaluate? Do you come in submission or do you come in judgment? Are you seeking the path to the way of life or are you finding a way to bend the scriptures to justify the path you're already on? And as we leave today, throughout all of the academic speak, May this be our determination, the simplicity that is in Christ, that we will, by God's grace, seek unto the scriptures with an expectation that God's word is meant to be understood, with a desire that we would understand it, to the end that we can receive it with gladness and obey it, accessible to all of those who will humble themselves before his word in faith. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.